Well, if you would turn with me to First Thessalonians, First Thessalonians in your Bibles, we dipped into chapter one. We are going to be looking at First Thessalonians chapter four, one through twelve. But I would have you know that First Thessalonians is centered around the gospel, the message of the gospel, the power of the gospel. As we noted in our scripture reading, brought a full conviction and power and assurance that was wrought by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, we note that the Thessalonians received the word of God, but they didn't receive the word of men. They received the word which was marked by the divine character of God. It is the divine word. As such, it produced a performing work in those who believe. So this book, 1 Thessalonians, is about the ministry of the gospel, the power of the gospel. It wasn't just something that brought about a full conviction and assurance, but it produced faith, it produced love, it produced hope in Christ. As such, the Thessalonians were noted as those who, they lived the gospel, they trumpeted forth the gospel. The word to trumpet is often translated by commentators as a thunderclap. Paul said, I didn't need to say anything because the gospel was so transforming in your lives, it just burst forth like a volcano. Paul says, it did the same to us. Because here we came to Thessalonica in suffering. You saw, as it were, this, this cloud of suffering and lightning and thunder, and you heard about it as we approached Thessalonica. But we imparted our life for you for the sake of the gospel because of Christ, and we lived our lives in light of the glory of God, not to please men. So we get to chapter 4. Chapter 4, and we see the glory of that gospel ministry is centered on Christ. It procures gospel purity. It procures sanctification. But this sanctified life, this gospel ministry life, is fueled by Christ. Let's read 1 through 12, chapter 4. Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus, that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now, as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your own hands just as we commanded you so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. Now, as we read this passage, we often stop with the issues of sexual immorality and impurity and lustful passion. 
But I would have you know that this whole passage is flowing out of 4.1. We exhort you, we urge you, in the Lord Jesus, your position in Christ, that is the gospel, the cross-centered life. So that sexual immorality and impurity and lustful passion are only a result of not being satisfied with who you are in Christ. It's the issue of our desires. If our desires are not in Christ, then what does it lead to? And so this passage deals with gospel purity. It is a pure devotion to Christ. Time magazine recently ran an article entitled, Why Disasters Are Getting Worse. And we've witnessed an unprecedented toll on homes, businesses, and lives by floods, hurricanes, earthquakes, cyclones, tornadoes, you name it. And I was expecting to find another article that blamed the climate and argued for the greening of America or something like that. But this time, time underlined the growth of population in disaster-prone areas. It only takes a glance at a population map to note that the majority of people live along the coast. (laughs) And of course, the coast provides exports and imports, food and, well, luxury. But the cost? Billions in losses, millions homeless, hundreds killed. The issue? One's position, one's location. In 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 1, read it again with me. Notice the position. Finally, then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus. What is interesting about this passage is he begins by exhorting and requesting and urging in Christ. That is, apart from Jesus Christ, Apart from your identity with Christ, your spiritual union with Jesus Christ, apart from the cross, there is no power for living a sanctified life, for loving the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, for loving our neighbors as ourselves, which is a reflection of loving Him. There is no power. It is our position, it is our unity in Christ That is the basis for living a sanctified, holy life. It is your spiritual unity with Christ that makes sanctification possible. It is this Christ-empowered, sanctified life that procures this purity that the Spirit of God is asking for in this text. If your position is not in Christ, if you are not empowered by the gospel, if you are not living a cross-centered life, you are in for disaster. Now, indeed, there is a place, and this passage will do this, it will exhort us based upon threats and warnings. We'll see that. The Lord is the avenger. But that's not how he begins. He begins by, if I could use this word, enticing you. Enticing us with the glory of Christ, with the glory of God. His pleasure, His will, His calling. In order that our lustful passions may be drained with the fulfillment of divine passion so that any immorality or any inclination toward it would be destroyed and crushed with divine holiness, that defrauding of others would be replaced with love, which again is Christ wrought. So Paul begins, he gives us nine, and I'll probably add a tenth at the end, but nine sanctifying weapons intent on securing gospel purity. That is a pure devotion to Christ. Nine sanctifying weapons. Intent on securing a pure devotion to Christ. 
is the glory of gospel ministry. It is Christ. First one is your position in Christ. We've already touched on it. Your position in Christ. Not only does this verse commend Christ's authority, we request, we exhort you in the Lord Jesus, but it reminds us of the centrality of our salvation in Christ. Look with me. We want to dip into chapter 1 a little bit. Verse 2 of chapter 1. Notice, well, verse 1 ends with grace to you and peace, recognizing God's glorious grace and empowerment. Indeed, for salvation, but also for this sanctification, this holy life. And so it is not by accident or mishap that verse 2 follows grace by saying we give thanks. We give thanks to God because it's His grace, it's His power. And what does this power accomplish? Verse 3, constantly bearing in mind your work, which is produced by faith or the work of faith and labor, that's a, a word of toilsome. It's used of uh, the strikes and blows of heavy toil. Labor, which is produced by love. It is this, this love and affection that produces labor and toil. And the steadfastness to be anchored, which is produced by hope. So where does this faith, love, and hope come from? Your position in Christ. He says, in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the presence of our God and Father, faith, love, hope flow out of your relationship with Jesus Christ, your position in Christ, your unity with Christ. Faith in Christ is anchored in the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you will, it looks to the past, looks to the cross, and is anchored on the solid rock. Love is a present, abiding communion and fellowship with Christ. Christ says, you abide in me. We are drawing life from Christ as we come to the Word of God and we commune with Christ. And hope is anticipation of the eternal promises of Christ. It looks forward with utmost expectancy. But it all relates to Christ. And so Paul can say, live out Christ's life in Christ. Live out Christ's life in Christ. Draw from Christ as the branches draw from the vine. This is smacking, stamping of gospel centrality. The focus of this passage of verse 1 and the remaining exhortations flow out of what it means to hold on to the gospel, to be in Christ. Ephesians 1, don't go there, but these in Christ statements are all over the place. In Christ, we've been loved by God. In Christ, we have been chosen by God. In Christ, we have a substitute for sin, a satisfaction for wrath, that Christ drank up the divine wrath which we deserve. In Christ, we have an atonement for guilt that sin is paid for. In Christ, we have been justified and declared righteous. In Christ, we've been sealed with the Spirit, stirring our heart's affections for Christ. In Christ, we have an inheritance in heaven. And in Christ, we have died to self and raised to a new life in Christ. The gospel, Christ, controls us. We've been joined with Christ. That is the power and the motivation for a sanctified life, for a life of holiness, a life motivated by the affections for Christ. It is in Christ and through Christ and by Christ and for Christ. 
And go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I want to dig into it just a little bit more. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And notice Paul's exhortation as he wraps it into the issues of immorality. But we see this spiritual emphasis here. We don't want to just run past it. Helps us understand a little bit more what it means to be in Christ. And as you're turning to 1 Corinthians 6, 12 and following, I would have you note that in Numbers 25, 1 through 3, Numbers 25, 1 through 3, maybe you just want to write it down in a side note of 1 Corinthians 6, Moses tells us that Israel joined themselves with Baal. They committed spiritual adultery. But underline that, they joined themselves with Baal. It was a spiritual union. They served idols. They worshipped idols. So they were joined with them. And, and the, the impact that, that Moses is making there is the, a spiritual union of being joined with Baal worship. Well, Paul picks up on that in 1 Corinthians six twelve. He uses this verbiage of joining. If you drop down with me in verse 13 towards the end, he says there, the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord is for the body. Now, God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through His power. Notice the sanctification. We belong to the Lord. He belongs to us. Verse 15, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? There's your unity. Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? Did you catch that? Joining. It's a union. For he says the two shall become one flesh. Verse 17. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. And then in verse 19, we'll pick up on this later. We'll refer back to this. So note it. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, that you are not your own? You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Spiritual union, joined with Christ. The picture is a marriage relationship. No wonder in 2 Corinthians 11, 2, Paul says this, For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you. I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a virgin. You see, our identity, our union with Christ is portrayed in a marriage relationship. And indeed, it is fitting. For even as justification is a declaration, it is a reckoning, a consideration of God. He looks at us and He counts us righteous because of the righteousness of Christ imputed or credited to our account through faith. It is a legal standing that we have before God. And then He begins to work that out in our life, a consummation, if you will. Oh, it smacks of marriage. Yes, it does. You see, for the Jew... A bride-to-be and a groom-to-be. The groom-to-be would meet with the father and they would negotiate a a purchase price, much like a redemption, if you will. And after negotiating that price, they would drink from a cup which would initiate and establish a covenant relationship between bride-to-be and groom-to-be that would be established for about a year. And then he would go to his father's home and prepare a dwelling place. And then he would come back in the dark of night with his groom's men And friends, and they would trumpet forth, the groom has come. He would take his bride-to-be to the father's home and would begin a celebration of seven days. But on the first day, 
the groom would take his wife-to-be veiled so that none could see into the groom's room that had been prepared and the relationship would be consummated. She would stay there and he would walk out and declare it had been consummated. Psalm 19, I believe is verse 5, picks up on that in relationship to the son as the groom runs out of the chamber and makes a proclamation. And then he would go back to his bride and the celebration would go on for seven days. And after the seventh day, he would present his bride unveiled. Legal, a year. They were considered betrothed, married, so to speak, without the consummation. And they would live in light of that legal standing until the day of consummation and great rejoicing and celebration. It is our position in Christ that is being declared here to live in light of that final consummation when he comes back and returns for his bride. And we celebrate the marriage supper of the Lamb as 1 Thessalonians 4 says we will always be with him. This is the power. This is the enablement. It is who we are in Jesus Christ. That's the first sanctifying weapon. We spent most of our time there for a reason. That's where the power is. That's where he can exhort us and request us. Anything else? There is no power. It's just our duty. It's just our flesh trying to live a holy life. And you can't apart from Christ. You're powerless. Remember the cross. Remember who Christ is. Remember his righteousness. There's a second sanctifying weapon. It secures a pure devotion to Christ. It drains lustful passions with the fulfillment of divine passion, destroys immorality, and crushes the defrauding of others with love for one another. And that is the pleasure of God. The pleasure of God. Look with me again at verse 1. That as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, but that you excel still more. To walk and please God is separated in the New American Standard, but in the Greek, the two are inseparable. You could translate it to walk in a manner pleasing to God. Or as 1 Thessalonians talks about, walking in a manner worthy of God. It is a walk that characterizes one's life, one's habits, one's thinking patterns, one's behavior. It is a walk that is consistent with the pleasure of of God. It is motivated by the fragrance and joy and delight and pleasure of God. That is, the walk is drawn by the glory and grandeur of God. I remember when I was preparing for my driver's license, I was about 15 years old, and my dad and I were doing paper routes or routes together. And he always gave me this warning whenever you're going to hit something, or you're headed off the road into a collision, don't look at the object. You will hit it every time. You're going to hit it every time. <laughs> I remember that one day. We're delivering about 2.30 in the morning, and I'm heading down this driveway. It's icy out, of course. You know, what's a 15-year-old doing driving with ice? Well, my father apparently is really training me. <laughs> so here I am. I'm hitting the top of this driveway, and I'm coming down, and it's sliding, and there's the building right down below, and I'm heading right towards it. And somehow, I got that vehicle to turn and to slide in between two poles. And my dad whew, looked at me, how did you do that? And I just thought, well, I wasn't looking at the building. I would have hit it. I was trying to find open space, and there it was. What draws your attention? Where's your heart? You will hit it every time. Paul says, we walk in such a way that we're motivated by the pleasure and glory of God. Turn with me in Psalm 16. 
What is so wonderful about our relationship with Jesus Christ is that Christ in conquering death and sin and rising to victory was motivated by the joy of God, by the pleasure of God. Hebrews 12 makes that very clear, that He endured the shame. He despised it. And He sought the joy of His Father. Psalm 16, verse 10. Quoted in Acts 13 and referenced to Christ says this, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Acts 13 applies it to Christ. You'll find that in your margins if you want to track that down. Nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. What brought Christ through death, through sin, that is, that He he hung there on the cross and took the wrath of God for my sin. What brought the eternal Son of God who clothed Himself in humanity, the God-man, through the wrath of God For sinners like you and I. Verse 11. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. And in your right hand there are pleasures forever. Only one will satisfy God. God. Christ. The second person of the Trinity. Mind focused on the pleasures of God. His Father. What draws us through the temptations and allurements of this world but the pleasure of God? And how can you have such a focus? Because of who you are in Christ. This is what He has done for us on our behalf. What wins your heart? Paul says to excel still more to overflow still more, to increase greatly. How can I? Will I ever take the cup to the well of God's infinitude and come up dry? No, you will not. God is infinite. And for all eternity, you will be enjoying, and I will be enjoying the pleasures of God, His goodness. As Psalm 16, 1 and 2 says, You are my good Psalm 73 says, Whom have I in heaven besides you? And besides you, I desire nothing. Paul prays in Ephesians 3.19. What a glorious passage and what a prayer for each one of us to pray for one another. He prays in Ephesians 3.19 that we would know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Did you get that? Filled up to all the fullness of God. You will never run dry for all eternity and join God. You say, but how can that be possible? Verse 20 says, Now to him who is able, who has the power to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, to all generations, get this, forever and ever. Amen. Let it be. His power. For all eternity that we may grow in the fullness of God. We are motivated by His pleasures. You say, well, how can I have such a focus? How can I excel still more? Well, we've seen our power, our power for purity in Christ. We have seen our motivation, that is the pleasure of God, and now we will see the command, the instructions. 
Look with me at verse 2. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. So how do we practically excel still more? The four connects us back to this exhortation to abound and to grow in our walk that is motivated by the pleasure of God, the glory of God. The commandments here, or instruction, is a military term. It connotes the authority of a military superior, communicating military orders. And it is fitting that this word here, this military word, is combined with the lordship of Christ, the Lord Jesus. The weight of these military orders rests upon the sovereignty and lordship of Christ. But notice he says, through the Lord Jesus. He doesn't say through us apostles. He says through the Lord Jesus. Now, we're not questioning the fact that the apostles were used in the ministry of the word of God, but Paul isn't emphasizing that. What he's saying is that this is Christ's instruction. That is, when you come to the Word of God, you are communing with Christ. You are receiving direct orders from Christ. That is, He speaks, He proclaims, He communicates His Lordship through His Word. That's what His Word does. The flesh makes its promises too, beloved. The flesh communicates its commands and instructions too. The flesh says, do this and I will secure your joy and your satisfaction. The flesh wars with the lordship of Christ by competing with the word of Christ. It makes its own promises, its own commands. It demeans the glory of Christ, it suppresses the glory of Christ, and it exchanges the glory of Christ. The flesh denies the attributes of lordship of Christ and attributes them to the creature. The flesh's tactic is to turn your thoughts away from the sovereign lordship of Jesus Christ so that you will use Christ for yourself, that you would declare yourself Lord and how can Jesus help me? The flesh attempts to domesticate Jesus, to make him a pet. But God's word comes to our hearts and does battle with the promises of the flesh by thundering and trumpeting forth the lordship of Jesus Christ. No wonder in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3, that the work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope are in our Lord Jesus Christ, His sovereignty. No wonder in chapter 1, verse 6, just dropping down a few verses, you became imitators, you mimicked us and the Lord. No wonder in verse 8, The word of the Lord has sounded forth, trumpeted, and thundered forth. The word of God proclaims the lordship of of the glories of Christ. The word of God wins our heart's affection, not by just offering the pleasures of God in Christ, but also the glories of the lordship and sovereignty of Christ. He is no weakling. You cannot domesticate him. He is sovereign. He not only demands our affections, but he wins our affections. He wins our affections. During the summer of 1995, my wife and I decided to drive 24 hours straight through from Nebraska to California. It was August. Didn't realize it would be 115 degree heat. And she's eight months pregnant. (laughs) Go figure. That was our first, of course. Hello. (laughs) Great job, Daddy. (laughs) Well, on the way back, the way there was fine. On the way back, it was at 115 degrees. 
It's funny talking to Eric and Christy Raymond because they remember that exact day. <laughs> they were having Bryce around about the same time. <laughs> and it was hot. Well, I found some cheap gas in Kearney. Ethanol. Well, my 1989 Chrysler LeBaron didn't do well with ethanol. It was so hot and the fuel lines were so thin that that alcohol just before it even got to the engine. And here we are sitting out in Colorado, the panhandle, <laughs> 115 degrees, suffering. And I'm taking the water, what little water I can, you know, and trying to pour it on the fuel lines. Which one? Do you keep some of the water for yourself? You pour some on there. I mean, you want to get out of there. Well, we had to little by little try to burn it and replace it with regular gasoline. And that engine was never the same. Sadly, we try the same tactic in our Christian lives, in our Christian walk. The world tempts us to fill our lives with cheap gas, cheap fulfillments that make extraordinary promises, but they devastate the Christian life. They are cheap thrills. But the Word of God, the instructions of the Lordship of Christ, the commandments of Christ, powerfully communicate the promises of God necessary for us to excel and to abound and to overflow in the eternal satisfactions of God's pleasure. There is a fourth sanctifying weapon, the sovereign will of God. The sovereign will of God. Verse 3, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. This is the will of God, your sanctification. This is God's purpose for your life. This is God's sovereign intention. When he saved you, when he chose you before the foundation of the world in Christ and carried out his salvation plan in Christ, his goal is your sanctification. His goal is to be set apart for Christ as a bride to the groom. This word communicates then God's purpose, but also God's desire, his wish. And the two here are inseparable. His desire is his purpose and his intention, and he will carry them out. Ephesians 1.4 says we've been chosen in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Now, sanctification communicates two realities that you probably don't come across too often. There is a positional sanctification. A positional sanctification, and that's this unity with Christ in which the believer is credited with the righteousness of Christ through faith in Christ so that we are set apart for salvation. The believer has a holy standing before God. That's positional. But there is a practical outworking of sanctification in the life. There is a growth in holiness. There is a conformity to the character of Jesus Christ. There is a calling to be holy as he is holy. Hebrews 12:15 says this, holiness or sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. If your life is not characterized by sanctification, by holiness, by being set apart to Christ, motivated by His pleasures, His glory, His Lordship, you've got to question where you are in Christ. Are you even in Christ? And if you, as a believer, confident who you are in Christ, and there are those times of struggle and sin, and your heart's being won away, run back to consider your identity in Christ. That's the promise of Romans 6. Consider who you are in Christ. And the world's promises melt away. And the legalism melts away because my flesh accomplishes nothing. It is all Christ. And you will grow in sanctification. 
Can the flesh bring about its purposes to completion? Can it bring about its sovereign will? No, you and I know it can't. We, we make all these promises to ourselves. So if I do this, then I'll be pleased. I'll enjoy it. And it comes around and it bites. It cannot fulfill its promises. But God's will will be fulfilled. Battle the will of the flesh with the will of God. His will is irrevocable. So the sovereign will of God. We've seen our position in Christ. We've seen the pleasure of God. We've seen the commandment of Christ. We've seen the sovereign will of God. Look with me at verse 4 and 5. You will note intimacy with God in holiness. Intimacy. And notice this word know. You'll see it twice here. That each of you know. It's, it's, it's communicating this intimate knowledge, this intimate communion and fellowship. Yes, indeed, it's intellectual, but it is an intimate understanding. It's one thing for me to pull out a picture of my children and say, Ah, do you now know my children? Well, I know about them. You've kind of told me about them. But it's different. When I look at my children, I know them. I, I, I relate to experiences with them. So it's a knowledge about them, no doubt, but it's even a step further. It is a relationship, a communion, a fellowship with. That is to know. So he calls us to know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passions like the Gentiles who do not know God. Don't commune with the flesh. Don't have a wonderful relationship with your flesh, meditating on yourself, communion with yourself, fellowshipping with yourself and the thoughts of your heart. Meditate on Christ. It's a call to intimacy with Him. Now, there are a couple questions that need to be answered. The, the first one is simply this. What is the vessel? Some of your translations may say there in verse 4, know how to acquire his own wife. Other translations say the body. The word acquire a, a, a can mean possess or even control, depending on the context. I take it as control his own body, not acquire a wife. Oh, indeed, the context has to shape the meaning, no doubt. But number one, to call for marriage as the solution to lustful passion would violate what Paul's instruction on celibacy in 1 Corinthians 7. He says it's good to be single. You're able to devote yourself to the Lord. Um, you don't have to be hindered with, it. well, needing to serve my family. You're able to serve the Lord, serve the family of God. Secondly, the body fits Paul's frequent usage elsewhere. Indeed, it can be applied to wife. We see that in 1 Peter 3, 7 as a, as a vessel. But the context tells us that. But it's also applied to self. In 2 Corinthians 4, 7, you may just want to write these down. We don't have time to look at them. Paul talks about this treasure in earthen vessels. Now, it's clearly not saying the wife only. 2 Timothy 2, 21, the vessel for honor. Acts 9, 15, Paul is a chosen vessel. So it's clearly also used of one's body, one's self. Now, some charge that vessel is never used of the body in light of a pure relationship. That is, with regard to woman. Well, I would beg to differ. In 1 Samuel 21, verse 5, 1 Samuel 21, verse 5, now we've got to look at the Septuagint here, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, because otherwise the Hebrew doesn't help us out much. You're not going to find the same word vessel in Hebrew. Uh, 1 Samuel 21, 5, David takes his men. They're asking for the loaves of bread from the priests. And the priests say... Have you abstained from women? Have you used your vessels for purity? Same words, abstain and vessel, used in the Greek, applied in a pure relationship. I take it furthermore that the context is not marriage. It's contrasted to Gentiles who demonstrate lustful passions, not marriage. Okay, now that we've ascertained that it's the body and the self, how are we to use it? 
he says, in sanctification and honor. That is, we are drawn away from impurity by Christ's beautiful lordship, sanctification and honor. I remember trying to find a place to propose to my wife. (laughs) I came from California, and they literally came in on white horses, dressed up as princes, and, and came to the house. And I'm going, can't do that. I'm just That's too embarrassing. But they would do stuff like this. They would try to top each other. That's out of Grace Community Church in Crossroads. Um, couldn't do that. So I, I found in Lincoln this place called the Sunken Gardens. And it's nicely, you know, sunken. <laughs> it's a beautiful flowers. I was so nervous. It seriously took about five, six hours of walking around until the, the, the moon came out and the sun went down. And that kind of defeats the whole purpose. <laughs> I was just so nervous, as you men would, would understand. Well, I, I was excited. Finally popped the question. She said yes. And instead of kissing her on the lips, I got her nose. You know, it's the first kiss. Um, I come home. To, uh, her parents are there. They've got, they were so excited. And her dad blew the, uh, the sunken gardens and told me that about 10 years ago, Chris, that used to be a garbage dump. <laughs> My wife reminds me that that, that makes for wonderful flowers. <laughs> But I was uh, greatly disturbed by that information because there's a big difference between a garbage dump and a garden. (laughs) So, so much for the prince on a white horse. Well, Scripture calls us to recognize the beauty of the garden of the Lordship of Christ, sanctification and honor. We're to know not the body, how to use the body, as some commentaries like to tell us, but we are to know how to use our vessels in sanctification and honor in the grandeur and beauty of Jesus Christ. You know, when you're tempted by the lusts of the flesh, why don't you meditate on who you are in Jesus Christ and who Christ is? That's the purpose. The fullness of deity dwells in Him. In Him are wisdom and knowledge. Power. All authority has been given to Him. So authority. Justice and righteousness dwell in Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.29 He is the fullness of truth and the fullness of grace. John 1, 14 through 17. He is eternal life. He is God. Would you worship Him and love Him? And when your heart steers away, run to the Lordship of Christ in the Word and He will communicate the garden of sanctification and honor, the garden of Christ, and draw your heart to Him. Jonathan Edwards, in his book, Charity and Its Fruits, says this, True discoveries of the divine character dispose us to love God as the supreme good. The discoveries of the divine character. That's what he says. Dispose us to love God as the supreme good. They unite the heart in love to Christ. When persons have a true discovery of the excellency and sufficiency of Christ, this is the effect. They love him whom they believe to be the Christ, the son of the living God. And when the truth of the glorious doctrines and promises of the gospel is seen, these doctrines and promises are like so many cords which take hold of the heart and draw it out in love to God and Christ. You want to learn how to control the vessel? Look to Christ. Look to Christ. A couple more. We'll have to wrap it up quickly. The chastening of God. The chastening of God. He does move to a threat. Verse 6, that no man transgress, that's to step across the line in enmity, and defraud, that's to take advantage of a person, his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, 
just as we told you before and solemnly warned you. God chastens. It's interesting that he says, your brother, because what if you sin against an unbeliever? Well, because you see, when you are joined in immorality, you drag the members of Christ, the body of Christ, into that sin. How dare we? How dare we bring the body of Christ into sexual sin? This is treachery. Unless we stop there and point our fingers at the behavior of sexual immorality, how about the heart's affections that are won by the prostitute? I mean a spiritual prostitute, any idol that draws our affections from Christ. He is the avenger. Revelation 22.15 says that no immoral person will inherit the kingdom of heaven. And for the believer, Hebrews 12 says that God chastens those whom he loves. He is the avenger. He cares for his body. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. There's a seventh. A seventh. We've seen the chastening of God. We look at the calling of God. Verse 7. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. I wish I could unpack this a little bit more, but this call is a divine enablement. It is a powerful summons that comes through the preaching of the gospel. In John 10, Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, they follow me, so that the gospel goes forth and we hear the divine calling of God. As 1 Thessalonians 2.13 says, It is not the word of men that we hear, but we hear the word of God. In John 5.24, Christ says the dead will hear his voice. John 5, 24 and 25, the dead will hear his voice. He says there will a time that will come when the dead, the literal physical dead, will hear his voice and raise, and their spirits will be joined with their bodies. But in 525, he says, and now is, applying a spiritual ministry to the voice of Christ, that the gospel goes forth and awakens the spiritual dead and grants them life. That is the call of God. God has called us. He's summoned us. He's awakened us from the dead, not for impurity, but sanctification. Eighthly, the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God. Look at verse 8. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives you his Holy Spirit. There's a caveat here worth grabbing a hold of. Giving the Holy Spirit is a present tense. He didn't say gave, looking at our regeneration and conversion, but he says it gives his Holy Spirit to you, and it does make you cock the head a little bit and go, hmm, that's interesting. Why giving? Well, it is emphasizing that the Spirit of God does not go on a vacation. He is jealous for your heart. He works to empower your life with the grace of God in sanctification. To reject sanctification is to reject God. To reject God. There's a ninth. We're moving here. (laughs) The love of God. The love of God. Look at verse 9. Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves, I love this, are taught by God. Literally, the word is God taught. To love one another. God teaches our hearts to love. We love because he first loved us. Love is is a supernatural, spiritual work of God in the heart. There is love that is shed abroad towards the saints. Verse 9, to love one another. Verse 10, for indeed you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. 
That love will be kindled more as you grow in Christ. So there's an affection of love towards the saints, and it grows and it excels because the love of Christ doesn't dry up. Our love can continue to grow in Him. But there's also love toward the stranger, verse 11. And make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. Love of God fueled in the heart overflows not only towards believers but also toward the stranger so we don't use them for ourselves but rather we are content in Christ, content with His provisions. We are satisfied with God so that we are able to minister to those who are in need. The last one is verse 13, the coming of Christ. We won't explore that one, but that's the final motivation for gospel purity is the coming of Jesus Christ. So I ask you, when you struggle with the coming of Christ, and that's not your motivation, or the love of God, or the ministry of the Holy Spirit, or the will of God, or the calling of God, you need to run back to Christ, run back to the ministry of the gospel. It's only Christ that will quench your heart, quench your thirst, conquer sin, deal with sin, and produce a sanctified, holy life. Father, we thank you for the ministry of your word. We thank you for not only calling us to duty, which it is our duty, we are believers, we're responsible to obey, but you've given us the power in Christ. May we run to the gospel, run to the cross. We live in the shadow of the cross. As Romans says, we stand in the cross, we stand in grace. We thank you for giving us everything we need for life and godliness in your Son. We'd ask that you be honored in our lives for the glory of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.